Shalom Aleichem, and welcome back to Sefer Maccabim. We learned last time about some of Yehudah Maccabee's first great victories, including against Apollonius in the Gophna Hills and against Saron at Bethoron. Now a gigantic Greek army, more than 40,000 strong, are encamped in the borders of Judea, intending to destroy everyone within it, and Yehudah has gathered the Jews at Mitzpah to entreat HaKadosh Baruch Hu and prepare for the impending battle. Now, Gorgias, one of the three army generals, Seeing how previous attempts to confront the Jews have failed miserably, decides to launch a sneak attack. He takes 5,000 foot soldiers and 1,000 cavalry and leads them out of their camp while it's still night, in order that he should be able to attack the Maccabees suddenly and swiftly and wipe them out in one go. How does he find his way through the mountains? Hellenist Jews agree to guide him. News of this surprise attack, however, reaches Yehuda, who thinks to himself, Perfect! If Gorgias has taken these men to hunt us, they're no longer protecting the Greek camp. Now's the perfect opportunity to attack their camp and beat Gorgias at his own game. So Yehuda takes 3,000 of his most valiant men, and under cover of night, they sneak out of the mountains and descend to the Greek camp at Emmaus on the plain. And as day breaks, they blow their chauffeur and fall upon the Greek camp. Despite having neither armor nor swords, they smite the mercenaries easily. Yehuda, however, doesn't let his men take the spoils just yet. He tells them that once they've finished off Gorgias's men, there'll be plenty of time for collecting the booty. Meanwhile, Gorgias and his army have reached the Maccabean camp, and lo and behold, there's no one there. Gorgias assumes the Jews must have retreated further into the mountains, and sets off in pursuit of them. As dawn approaches, it seems that he gives up and returns back towards his camp, but when he and his army approach, they are shocked to find their camp in flames, and the Maccabees arrayed on the plain, Yehuda at their head, battle ready. The Seleucids are stricken with panic and flee to the lands of the Pelishtim by the coast. Only then do the Jews take the spoils of war they left behind. The spoils of war include gold, silver, and the blue and purple cloths known as Techelet and Argaman, the same royal fabrics that were used to build the Mishkan over a thousand years before. This whole confrontation became known as the Battle of Emas, and the text describes it as a Teshua Gadola Le Yisrael, a great salvation for Israel. Shaken, the surviving mercenaries return to Antioch and inform Lysias of their terrible defeat. Lysias, as might be expected, is terribly confused and very disheartened that he has not been able to fulfil the king's desire. And what will Antiochus do to him now? Lysias knows he must attack again, but it takes him a year until he finally sends the army. Maybe he wanted a break. Maybe he needed the time to reorganise the army. In any case, it's important to realise that the Maccabean revolt was not simply 26 years of non-stop battle, but rather on and off fighting that consisted of major battles interspersed between prolonged periods of rest with intermittent skirmishes. So the following year, Lysias gathers an even bigger army, 60,000 soldiers and 5,000 cavalry, and leads them into Judea that they might put an end to this ridiculous Jewish rebellion once and for all. The army encamps at Betzur in the mountains, southwest of Jerusalem, and Yehuda goes out to meet them with 10,000 men, truly the few against the many. When Yehuda sees the mighty Greek army, he looks upward and proclaims a tefillah to Hashem. Baruch atah Hashem elakeis ra'el v'ga'alo, atahikita et ben ha'anak b'yad David avdecha, v'nasata et chayel ha'goyim b'yad Yonatan ben Sha'al v'nasay kelav, t'nak gam atah et ha'machaneh ha'lezeh b'yad amcha Yisrael, l'man yevoshu v'yekalmu b'rov kocham v'hamonam. Blessed are you Hashem, God and Redeemer of Israel. You smote the sons of the giants through the hand of David your servant. You gave over the army of the heathens into the hands of Yonatan son of Sha'al and his armour-bearer. 
Now also give this camp into the hand of your people Israel to shame them and destroy them in their great strength and wealth. Yehuda goes on to request that the mercenaries be stripped of their courage and that they fall by the swords of those who love you, Hashem, so all who know your name will sing your praises. With that, the 10,000 Jews engaged the 60,000 plus Greeks and using their mountain tactics of leading the enemy soldiers into the valleys and raining arrows and stones on them, they successfully slay around 5,000 enemy soldiers. This battle, which takes place three years after the initial uprising in Modi'in, becomes known as the Battle of Betzur, another miraculous victory for the Maccabin. By this point, Nicias has realized one thing about the Jews that makes them so hard to overcome in battle. They are not afraid to die for their cause. As Rabbi Spiro points out in his book, this was completely unique in the ancient polytheistic world, because back then no one was willing to die for their faith. The prevailing attitude between different peoples who worship different gods was, I'll worship your god and you worship mine, the more gods the merrier. Only we, Am Yisrael, with our message of ethical monotheism to spread to the world, were willing to die for our Torah. Anyway, Lysias realises that he needs time to regroup, so he withdraws his troops north out of Judea to Antioch, a major Seleucid city on the Mediterranean coast, to prepare an even mightier army to evade Judea again. Yehuda watches them go, and he knows they are not gone forever, but he also knows it's going to be a long time, months even, before they're ready to attack again, and in the meantime, his people have respite. So he turns to the Jews and addresses them. This is the chance we've been waiting for. While the Greeks retreat to Antioch to nurse their wounds, we shall ascend to Jerusalem and repair and purify the Beit HaMikdash, which has been waiting for us all this time. The Torah Jews have not been able to visit Jerusalem since the reign of terror was set in motion by Antiochus. Now that Lysias has withdrawn the Seleucid troops, the only pocket of resistance left in the country is in the Acre, where Greeks and Hellenist Jews have barricaded themselves, and there is no way that they will dare to oppose the Maccabee army marching into Jerusalem en masse. So Bnei Israel returned to Yerushalayim in great joy, but the further they march into the city, the more subdued they become, their joy slowly being replaced by horror. And as they reach the courtyard of the Beit HaMikdash, a monstrous sight meets their eyes. The Beit HaMikdash has been turned into a pagan dump. The Mizbeach is defiled and pigs have been sacrificed on it, infested swine's flesh rotting everywhere. The carved wooden gates at the entrance to the Azara are burned. Plants grow in the Azara, as in a forest. The blue embroidered parochet separating the Heichal and the Devir is torn down, and the site has been made utterly desolate. The Jews tear their clothes and place ashes on their heads, falling down on their faces and crying out bitterly, mourning that this holiest of sites could be reduced to such a state as this. But it's not a time for mourning. Before beginning any repair work, Yehuda sends some men to guard the Acre to make sure the mercenaries and Hellenist Jews cooped up there don't try to fight back. With that taken care of, the first thing the Maccabim do is to try and light the menorah. But what will they use? After all, we learned back in chapter 1 how when Antiochus returned from Egypt, he ransacked the Beit HaMikdash and carried off all the vessels contained therein. So they solved the problem by fashioning a makeshift menorah out of wood. But then, what can they light it with? Only pure olive oil, where the seal of the Kohen Gadol can be used to light the menorah. And while the Greeks were in control, they defiled every single container of oil in the place. After much searching, they eventually discover one jar of oil with an unbroken seal. But it's only enough oil to burn for one day. The Maccabeum decide to use it anyway. And as we all know, a miracle occurs 
and it stays lit for eight days, when enough time has passed for a delegation of Jews to press new oil and have it delivered to the Beit HaMikdash. We'll speak more about the miracle of the oil later. But for now, it's interesting to note that the book of Maccabees doesn't actually mention the miracle of the oil. Luckily for us, we know what happens from the Gemara in Masechet Shabbat, Daf 21b. When the Greeks entered the sanctuary, they defiled all the oils that were in the sanctuary by touching them. And when the Hasmonean monarchy overcame them and emerged victorious over them, they searched and found only one cruise of oil that was marked with the seal of the Kohen Gadol, undisturbed by the Greeks. And there was sufficient oil there to light the menorah for only one day. A miracle occurred, and it burned for eight days. After this, the Jews set about making the Beit HaMikdash back into the Beit HaMikdash. Yehuda chooses God-fearing Kohanim to remove the impure stones from the Azara, and eventually they also decided to pull down the Mizbeach and build a new one, because the Greeks had sacrificed pigs upon this one. They bring in hull stones and fashion a new Mizbeach out of them. They clean the Azara and repair the damaged buildings and fortifications. They also craft new vessels for the Beit HaMikdash to replace the ones taken by Antiochus, including a new Shulchan, a new golden Mizbeach for the Katoras, and a new menorah made of gold this time. Where did they find all this gold and silver when Antiochus ransacked the treasury? I'm sure that the Jews around Judea were eager to contribute valuables, but you've got to remember that in the wake of the Battle of Emmas we mentioned earlier, the Maccabees collected truckloads of spoils from the Greeks in the form of precious metals and fabrics. I feel sure these were used as well. And if it seems strange that Greek spoils should be used to rededicate the Jewish house of worship, remember that all the gold that Bnei Israel took out of Egypt was once owned by the Egyptians. Some of this gold was used to build the Mishkan in the desert, and some of it was used to build the golden calf. This is something else I learned from Rabbi Yehuda HaKohen. On a deeper level, gold represents wisdom and cultural wealth. When we take gold out of Egypt, i.e. absorb wisdom and cultural values from civilizations foreign to our own, we have to know how to sift them. Which are suitable for us to integrate into our own society and can allow us to better fulfill our national mission, and which are actually harmful and require discarding? Which gold can we contribute to our Mishkan, and which do we have to discard as only being suitable for a golden calf? Living in the generation of the Gu'ula, it's vital we learn how to sift this foreign gold. Returning to the story, the Jews repair the paraches and hang it up again inside the Besamikdash, and they bring the new kalim inside. They bake 12 loaves of lechem hapanim to place on the shulchan, light the golden menorah with their fresh supply of olive oil, and burn katoras on the inner mizbeach. Finally, on the 25th of Kislev in the year 3625, three years after the start of the revolt, the Beit HaMikdash is fully purified, and the Maccabim gather the Jews there to rededicate the Beit HaMikdash in an official ceremony. Now we have to ask ourselves, why this date? Why the 25th of Kislev? Looking back to chapter 1, we see that the Greeks also chose the same date to defile the Mizbeach by sacrificing pigs over it. This can't be a coincidence. There must be something significant about this date. The Maharal of Prague, in his Sefer Ner Mitzvah, gives a wonderful answer which I'll share now. Looking back to the six days of creation, if Adam HaRishon was created on Rosh Hashanah, the first of Tishrei, by counting back five days, we can see that the first day when light was created 
fell on the 25th of Elul. Maharal goes on to discuss how when the light was created, it was perfectly balanced with the dark. But as the level of light changes throughout the year, it has four boundaries, significant points on the calendar. Firstly, when the light reaches its peak, which occurs on the 25th of Sivan. Second and third, when light and dark are perfectly balanced with each other, which happens twice in the year, on the 25th days of Elul and Adar. And lastly, when the darkness reaches its peak, which occurs on the 25th of Kislev. Thus we see how, although as fall progresses into winter, the level of light decreases, by the time we reach the 25th of Kislev, the light has reached its minimum level and begins to grow again. This date, even from before creation, was given a special power of rebirth, a special light of rededication. Starting on this date, for eight consecutive days, the Jews rededicate the Bitter Mikdash by rising early in the morning and bringing karbanot on the new Mizbayach amid joyous singing and playing of musical instruments by the Levian. The people fall on their faces in gratitude and praise HaKadosh Baruch Hu for driving out the Goyim and bringing them this salvation. For the ceremony, they'll go to extra lengths to decorate the Beit HaMikdash with crowns and golden shields. One of the last verses in the chapter reads, And Yehuda, his brothers and the entire congregation commanded that the dedication of the Mizbeach on the 25th of the month of Kislev should be celebrated every year with praise and thanksgiving to Hashem. Thus, the holiday we know as Hanukkah is established as part of our calendar, and to commemorate the victory at Betzur, the liberation of Yerushalayim, and the rededication of the Beit HaMikdash, Jews the world over will light Hanukkiyat, eat oily foods, and celebrate these eight days beginning on the 25th of Kislev as days of celebration and festivity for thousands of years to come. You and I are living proof of that. The last thing mentioned in this chapter is how the Jews take advantage of the Seleucid absence to fortify the walls around Harzion, the portion of Yerushalayim which contains the base of Mikdash. They do this to prevent the Greeks from returning and taking control of it as they did before. Finally, they fortify Betzur, the location of the last battle, to provide a defence against any invading Seleucids from the north or Idumeans from the south. This concludes chapter 4, but I want to speak for a little about the miracle of the oil itself. There are many interpretations for the miracle of the one-day oil supply lasting eight, but for my part, I want to share an interpretation I read concerning the miracle, which you may not have heard before. When Matichoho and his followers declared war on Seleucid Greece, not everyone agreed with them. And I'm not even talking about the Hellenists. Even among the Torah Jews, there were disagreements as to whether or not to support the militant Maccabee faction. Even in the first years of battle, when we achieved great victories, as we've already learned, not everyone agreed our war was miraculous in nature, or whether Hashem wanted us to be fighting the Greeks. But then, when we liberated Jerusalem and lit the menorah, we experienced an open miracle, the oil lasting eight days, which could clearly only have come directly from Hashem. The miracle of the oil therefore served as a stamp of divine approval that Hashem did desire us to fight this war and free Eretz Israel from foreign rule. What's even more amazing is how we see this chain of events playing out in modern Jewish history. In 1948, when we declared independence, we certainly experienced miraculous victories, but they were costly. Following the end of the 1948 war, we existed for nearly 20 years in a ghetto state with truncated borders, lacking Yerushalayim and the heartland of our country. 
and it was still possible for people to deny that things had really changed, or that Hashem had put an end to the exile of our people. But then in 1967, we experienced one of the most openly miraculous wars in our entire history, perhaps only second to the sun standing still for Yehoshua ben Nun in Givon. In only six days, Israel achieved a stunning victory over impossible odds that not only granted Israel defensible borders and reunited us with the heartland of our country, but also revealed the entire enterprise of the return to Zion and renewed Jewish sovereignty to be of a miraculous nature. Like the one-day oil supply lasting eight days for the Maccabim, the six-day war served as a stamp of divine approval for our entire liberation movement and the restoration of Jewish independence in our land. We'll resume next time with chapter 5 where news of the Jewish liberation of Yerushalayim reaches the surrounding nations.